You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What an exciting Sunday. Um, We not only get to celebrate dedications today, um, but we get to dive into what is the most well-known verse of the New Testament, uh, John 3.16. Now, John 3.16 is known by many, many people. You see it in a lot of different places. Tim Tebow used to wear it on his eye black, if you remember that, in his Florida days. Uh, Athletes plastered on their gear. You see it on coffee cups. You see it on billboards. You see this, this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's everywhere in Christian circles. And I would guess that many of you in this room Um, especially those who have grown up in the church, have been reciting this Bible verse since you were a kid. And this is the beautiful thing about scripture memory. In fact, we should be doing it more often is that even when the Bible's not there in front of you, the word of God dwells richly in you. Your mind, your heart may meditate on it and God uses this uh, to to lead us into truth. And, And so many of us I know can probably still rattle this verse right off the top of the head in any given second. And as we open up this passage Um, and realize it's familiar, one of the challenges for me is to preach familiar texts. Um, I I find it kind of difficult uh, because I have a desire to to present to you something that's not uh, so predictable, something that's not, uh, that you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, you know, you're, you know, I don't want to be boring. So there's a challenge in preaching familiar texts, and you would think that that would be the case with uh, the most famous passage in the New Testament, but it's not actually. Because while verse 16 is very well known, the stuff around it, the rest of this passage that was read is usually overlooked. And so today, what we're gonna do is we're going to look at the unfamiliar bits. And it's these unfamiliar bits that make John 3.16 stand out all the more brighter and present itself as a far more glorious verse 
than you initially thought. So we're gonna dig into these five verses, these the surrounding verses, and try to get familiar with them. And my goal this morning in this time here of, of kind of working through verse 17 through 21 is that uh, we work through it in such a way, the next time you hear John 3, 16, the next time the Holy Spirit brings it to your mind, you are not numb to it. You're not desensitized to this verse that you've been reciting since childhood. Rather, it stirs your heart toward worship in a greater capacity than ever before. And so to get there, I think there are three things that we must simultaneously understand about this text. Number one, we're going to talk about our situation. Number two, we're going to talk about God's disposition. And three, we're going to talk about God's action. And to minimize any one of these or to overlook any one of these three things that we must simultaneously hold as truth, if we minimize them, John 3.16 actually becomes less glorious than what God intends it to be. So the aim here, a glorious view of John 3.16, and we're trusting the Lord to bring this about. So the first thing that we're going to do is start uh, by looking at the thing where people most often tend to minimize or to overlook, which is our situation. Our situation. What I mean by our situation is the state of the world and the condition of humanity, the condition of the hearts of men. And as we think about our situation, it's very common that if, if you do not operate from a biblical framework, if you don't have a biblical worldview, there tends to be one of two ways that you tend to view the world. All right, I want to unpack these for you. Now, before I explain the first view, I've got a bit of a confession to make. I like country music. I do. I've been fighting it for years. Um, but over the last couple of years, I've, I've come to like country music, and you'll find me listening to it often. Uh, and I, I think I've come to like it for couple reasons, uh, great storytelling, all that stuff. But, but one of the things I like about country music, it's perhaps the last place in pop culture where people can talk about, sing about God, family, and love of country and not get canceled. So I like it for that. Now, that's not to say that all country is good and wholesome. It certainly has, <laughs> has had uh, some, some moral erosion but overall, I've come to like it. Now, I say that to say this. The first view that most people often hold about the world and the state of humanity is well captured in a Luke Bryan song. And in this song, he's presenting his outlook on the world, interestingly enough. And the chorus ends with this. This is his, his closing, closing lyrics here of the chorus. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Ironically, as I looked up these lyrics to make sure I got them right, uh, there was a picture of a young woman f flipping off the camera. So I was getting mixed messages here about what's going on. Uh, but anyway, th this, this view that Luke Bryan puts forward captures the first view that people commonly have about the world. That overall, overall it's good. I mean, sure, there's some bad apples. There's, there's some rough spots. But overall, if we, we have a very optimistic outlook on the world and the people in it. Now, John 3 gives us a very different outlook on people, on the world. And actually, when you dive into John 3, 16 through 21, there's actually a lot of really hard truths to, to wrap your mind around. There's some hard sayings that 
John lays out here for us. Now in verse 16, a famous verse, he says that for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him and Christ, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, there is an implied state of the world in that verse that God gave his son so the world would not perish. That means that the default of the world is that it is perishing. It is wasting away. It is dying. In fact, John in his epistle in in 1 John chapter two, he says something very similar in verse 17. He says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. A world left to itself, people left to themselves are perishing. The world that we have is dying, it's rotting, it's, it's in a state of decay. And when John says, he gave his son so, so those who believe would not perish but have life, the death that John is alluding to, the death that he's speaking about, isn't merely an absence of a heartbeat. The death that the gospel writer is talking about isn't just this this ceasing of existing. It's, It's actually far more than that. The way that John speaks of death here, and then later, if you keep reading on in John 3, verse 36, the the death, the perishing that he's speaking about is an equal opposite to the eternal life that God offers through his son. So if, if eternal life in Jesus Christ means eternal joy and peace and pleasure at God's right hand, the death that John is speaking of is antithetical to that. It's the opposite. In fact, in, in Revelation 14, if I jump there real quick, um, also was written by the apostle John. In Revelation 14, verse 10, through 10 and 11, he speaks to the kind of existence of this death. It's, it's a very bleak picture. He says, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in his image. So he's saying here, those, those who are subjected to death isn't just a, a physical ceasing of existence. There's a spiritual reality to this death, and it's, it's you see, it's, you're, you're drinking in the anger of God's wrath. There's torment, there's fire, there's sulfur, which I, I believe may Maybe it's not literal, it could be literal, um, but definitely an illustration to help us to understand that this death is very unpleasant. It's no cakewalk, it's no walk in the park. And it goes on forever and ever. Their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. So the opposite of, of eternal life being joy, peace, pleasure, we see eternal death being torment, misery, and taking on the wrath of God. That's how John pits it out in when he's speaking about the world is dying, the world is perishing. Now, one of the things that I love about the Bible is it's, it just makes so much sense. It's logical. And, and John, um, he gives us a very logical sequence as to why this death, this kind of death, is imminent for the world. In verse 17 and 18, he says, 
that death is the state of condemnation. Check this out. Verse 317 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But listen to this. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what he's saying here, he's saying that death is the state of or the payout of condemnation. Now, for condemnation, the definition of condemnation is to be sentenced to punishment. So the, the reference to condemnation, if it's a sentencing of sorts, to be sentenced implies that there is a trial or a judgment of some sort. And, and that's also referenced here where he says in verse 19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So he says, all right, so there's death. Death is a product of condemnation or it's the result of the state of condemnation. Condemnation has happened because we've been sentenced. The sentencing has happened because there's been a trial or there's been judgment. And in order for a trial or judgment to take place, there has to be a standard. You following me? There has to be a standard. Now, the standard is, is laid out here, and we'll get to that in a second, but, but to just connect these together, death is ultimately a product of not meeting the standard. It's summed up in, by the Apostle Paul by saying that the wages of sin is death. The payout of sin is death. Missing the standard is death. Now, the standard God uses to judge people is communicated throughout all of the Bible. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a lot of, of standards offered there in the law. Um, and, and, if, and if you know the Bible, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there's a lot of commandments. Um, it didn't always, it wasn't always that way. Uh, it began in Eden with one rule, right? God gave Adam and Eve one rule. That's it. There's one tree here. All the other trees go ahead and eat, but this one tree, stay away from that. Don't, don't eat it. Because the day you eat of it, surely you will die. So it started off with one rule, but as we continue reading through the scriptures, we see that people keep on finding ways to sin. <laughs> and so God has to provide new guardrails for people to operate it within. Because here's the thing. When, when God created the world, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God created the world with an unlimited capacity for flourishing. God created the world so that it would live, that, that life would just burst forth forever. And we see that in the fact that not only was there a tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was prohibited, but there was a tree of life there that Adam and Eve had access to. They were not prohibited from eating that. God intended for mankind to eat and to live forever with him. And in their life, they were to cultivate life. Now, as we keep reading through uh, the, the Old Testament, you see because of Adam and Eve's failure, and now humanity is under the curse of sin, we keep finding ways to fail, right, to miss the standard, and so the list of commandments grew. It's actually a grace of God to give us these commandments, to, to give us the path toward the good life. Now, we could go through and, and knock out all of the different commandments that God has given us um, that, that communicate to us the standard which we'll be judged by, but John does a great service for us in that he boils them all down for us in verse 19. Let me show you the standard. Take a look, verse 19, John 3, verse 19. 
and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his work should be exposed. So what John shows us here, in presenting to us the standard, here's the judgment, here's the standard. He says that the standard isn't ultimately about what you do or don't do. The standard is not ultimately about what you do or don't do. The standard is ultimately about what you love. Do you love the light or do you love the darkness? Those who love the light do good works. We see that as you continue on in the verse. Those who love the light will do good. They're drawn to the light. Those who love the darkness do wicked things and are afraid of the light. Now I say the ultimate thing that the standard reveals is what you love. But you've got to notice that what you love will always be revealed by your actions. Your actions tell the truth about what you love. And it shows us that it's the people who love the darkness who do the works of evil, who do the wicked acts. Now, when John is talking about this group of people, he isn't talking about a category of people who are, are prone to really especially grievous sins, right? Like a minority of the, the human population, a minority of human civilization. He's not just talking about those really, really evil, wicked people. He's talking about all sin. Every single Sin categorically falls into the file of works of evil, of wickedness. All sin reveals what our hearts most love. Now, if this is the case, if, if your sin rats you out, tells the truth about what it is you're loving, this means that all sin reveals a selfish betrayal of God. It's not just that I don't love God, but I love myself more than I love God. And therefore, my wants, my desires, my appetites supersede what God tells me to do. So then each and every sin is an act of us loving the darkness. Now, when we see this, when we see sin, the, the acts of wickedness is actually an expression of what we love, um, it helps us understand that that judgment isn't about God sending people to a, a fiery death. It isn't about God sending people to hell. In fact, the passage says that we're already condemned. God doesn't have to do this. We already stand condemned. What this is, is, is God in his judgment is giving sinners over to what they love most. You can see this in Romans 1 too. God gives people over to what they love. And when they love the darkness, they're given over to the dark. Now what this means is that when our loves are disordered, when we, our hearts were made to ultimately love God. Like that, that, that should be the thing we most 
love. But when our, our, our loves get disordered and, and things get scrambled, whether I love success or sexuality or money or comfort or whatever that thing is, whenever I put something above God, my loves are now disordered. Even good things like family and country, then my love is disordered. And whenever your love is disordered, it will always bring about death and condemnation. The hard truth here is there is nothing that you can do in and of yourself. There's no strength you can muster up to change this reality. In fact, verse 20 tells us why you are incapable of switching in yourself from loving the darkness to loving the light. Here's what John says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. So your love of wicked things not only means that you, you love that thing, which is wrong, it means that you hate the good thing. And because you hate the light, you do not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. We are incapable of coming to the light in, our, in and of ourselves by our own strength because it is too terrifying. No, if, if, if our situation really is what I've been laying out, that, that we're really in hot water, if you were to, as a sinner, as a, a, an evildoer, come to the light, the thing that this means is that you will be exposed Your acts of evil, your acts of wickedness, your sins will be exposed for what they are. And before a holy God, you will be condemned. Now, this is where I said there's, we talked about the the first worldview that everything's honky-dory, good. The second worldview comes into play here. Um, It's another common, unbiblical worldview that many people in our culture hold. It's been around for a while. That is nihilism. It's this view that the future and everything in it is very, very bleak, right? I'm in trouble. The world's going to burn. So what's the point? Why does any of this matter? And so people resign to fatalism. To some degree, they understand what the scripture testifies to is, is really that the world is in poor shape, right? It's perishing. Death is imminent, but they get blackpilled, dark, black, no hope, fatalistic. Now, the nihilists would be right if it's not for God's disposition towards the dying world. Because John says, in spite of hating God, in spite of hating the light, Verse 16 says that God so loved the world. It takes a special kind of love to return hate for love. It takes a special kind of love to love those who are your enemies. This this is astounding. This This is shocking. Perplexing. How how can God love those who hate him? 
How can God love the world? Now, I need to clear something up uh, with this verse because not, not only is, is verse 16 one of the most um, familiar verses of the Bible, it's also oftentimes one of the most misunderstood passages of the Bible. People hear this, that God so loved the world, and they think that God loves all people equally. Now, it's true in a general sense if we're talking about God's benevolent love. Um, we're told that God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust, right? The sun shines on the just and the unjust. There's a common grace. There's a benevolent love of God that is for all of his creation. But this isn't not the kind of love that John is talking about in this passage. The kind of love that John is speaking about is God's saving love, God's special love. And so it's simply not true that God loves everyone the same with his saving love. In fact, if you've been reading our Feast of Flourish Bible reading plan this past week, you spent a little bit of time in, in Psalm 11.5. It literally says that God hates the wicked and those who bring about violence. So, so there, there is a category of people that God hates. Now, when we mistakenly believe that God loves all people equally, it leads down two different paths that are, are just lead to heresy. For the first path um, is the path of universalism. If God so loved the world, God loves everybody equally, then, then there's this belief that all people will eventually, some way, some shape, somehow, get saved. Now, if that's the case, the Bible wastes a lot of ink talking about hell and God's wrath. So we need to avoid going down that path of thinking universalistically. But the other path, which I think is more common, is down the path of decisionism. If we say that God loves all equally and think that in order to receive God's love, God's saving love, is a matter of personal decision, a matter of personal choice. That means, though God loves all, only some of those who he loves will be saved. Now, one passage that has been sticking with me that, that um, in Galatians is God will not be mocked. God will not be made laughable. There's something humiliating about someone who loves someone so profoundly, so strongly, only to get rejected and say, no, it's not good enough. That's not what I want. Because God will not be mocked, I think this dismantles decisionism. The idea that some, God loves all, and some will choose to love God. Now, he, let me work this out one layer further. If belief is a matter of, of personal decision, if belief is a matter of choice, then we have made faith a work the act of believing, then we have turned into a work, something that we must muster up and cultivate in ourselves. But Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this, for grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, this is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
See, if, if, if God loves all people and it's up to a few or some to decide whether or not they want to love God back, if we go down the route of decisionism, we've made belief a choice and then it is something that we can boast about. And that just does not square up with biblical orthodoxy. John is saying, and, and this is where maybe it's challenging because you've, you've heard this verse over and over and over throughout your life, but maybe you haven't had it applied or preached in this manner. But what John is saying here is that God is, God's saving love is only for his elect. God's saving love is only for those who he predestined before the foundations of the earth were laid. God's love his saving love is only for the people that he has chosen. Now, some of the context within John 3 helps us to, to grapple with this. It makes it very clear. Uh, a lot of times we, we isolate John 3.16 from what came before and what came after, and then we end up making some of these mistakes of decisionism or, or universalism. But, but the conversation with, that happened with Nicodemus, just you know, the last 15 verses before this passage, give us a better understanding of what John is actually saying. Who are the people that God loves? Now, one of the things that the conversation with Nico, Nicodemus helps us understand is that the elect, God's elect, are no longer exclusively Jews. When, when, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says something about um, the wind blows wherever it wants and likens it, likens it to the Holy Spirit's action in the act of regeneration, he's pointing to the reality that that the gospel is not just for Jews, but for Gentiles also. So John is saying in a sense that th this love is for all who believe in Jesus Christ according to God's gift of faith. So it's not just the Jews now, open to the Gentiles as well. And God loves who he chooses. And God gives those he chooses the gift of faith. This means, this is, because God will not be mocked, God's saving love never lands on an unsaved person. In fact, Paul, again, I, we could just keep bouncing back between John and Paul here with Romans. Um, Romans, I, I think Romans 8 is just chock full of a bunch of really helpful things that sort of maximize what John is saying in this verse, in this, in this passage. In a section in Romans 8 where God is talking about those who he loves, it says this. This is Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called... And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. When God loves the elect, we're not just talking about warm thoughts or kind affections. When God loves the elect, it leads to action. Just, just as we saw earlier with um, those who love the darkness, they act wickedly. Those who love the light do good. Love always manifests in action. This brings us to, to my closing point here, is to see God's action, to see what God has done. 
And John here points us to what God has done, motivated by his, what Paul calls, this great love with which he loved us. The great love which neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor this life or the one to come can separate us from. John says that God, out of love, gave his only son. God loved the world so much, he gave his only son. Now, what does it mean to give his only son? This means that the the second member of the Trinity, you got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the second member of the Trinity, who was with God in eternity past, who was active in the creation of the cosmos, the second member of the Trinity who God delighted in, who shared fellowship with, that had this joyful existence with, God sent him into the world to put on flesh. And he sent him to put on flesh so that his flesh would be torn apart. What does it mean that God gave his only son? It means that he gave his son unto death. Now, the way that you measure love, the way you measure love, and this is true in human relationships and how, the way that God loves us, the way you measure love is by sacrifice. The way you measure love is by sacrifice. And what we see here is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and his only son gave up his life for yours. See, our our sin, the sin that had us condemned, now is placed upon Jesus. He, He took it upon himself there on the cross and our sin was condemned in Jesus' flesh. And this means that because Jesus took on your sin and and he was condemned, the sin was there, condemned on the cross, it means that now you are cleansed, you are forgiven, and you are justified, and you are glorified. See, Jesus' death means that you now have life, and not just life here now, but eternal life a life full of joy and pleasure and peace, quorum Deo, before the face of God. See, Jesus, there on the cross, he took your guilty plea and all of its consequences so that you would be forgiven. By his wounds, you are healed. By his wounds. Now, there's something that happens profoundly here. Go back to Nicodemus there talking about regeneration, this new birth that has to take place. And in this new birth, what happens now in the new birth, you can now love the light like you've never been able to before. God gives you a new heart that instead of being uh, inclined toward wickedness and evil and darkness, now you love the light because the light has first loved you. Now, we cannot, at the beginning I said you have to hold all of these three things in in. in Together, our situation, God's, um, what would it call? God's posture, that's not the right word, but same enough. And then God's action. You have to have all of these things. God's disposition, that's what it was. Our situation, God's disposition, 
and God's action, all of these have to be held together because you cannot grasp the good news of John 3.16 without first understanding the bleakness of our reality before God did anything to save us. You cannot fathom the greatness of God's love without seeing your sin as a massive obstacle first. And here's the thing, that when you've been loved with the love of God, you cannot help but to love God back. The darkness, you lose your appetite for it. The darkness, actually, here's the thing. Um, Hold on, I'll come back to that. You, you love a superior thing. You love God. And because of your love for God, it has been rightly ordered as the top of the, the totem pole. Now you can actually rightly love everything else. Now, now you can go to work and see your work, not as a place to prove yourself or to, to gain success or gain wealth, but a place to go into And because you're motivated by the love of God, you can go in there and actually love people freely. To go do the works. It even says this here at the end of this this passage in verse 21. It talks about um, whoever does what is true comes to light so uh, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's true of the family too. When you rightly love your family, it's, it's not a burdensome high expectations for your people, but rather you've seen the grace of God work in your life that, that gives you the ability to entrust yourself to him and love your people the way they must be loved. When we have new hearts, we get new desires. We love God now. And now because the love of God is at work within us, our actions are now fueled by God. We're we're fueled by God to do what is true, to do what is good, to do what is beautiful. And so that now our our whole life is lived unto God. So so here it is. here's, Here's the way that you express your love to God. Therefore, brothers, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Give yourself unto the Lord. And here's the crazy thing. This is, this is the paradox of the whole situation. See, when, if, if to love God means to sacrifice, and we think we're sacrificing all the, the appetites and sin and stuff that, that at one point we found alluring, the crazy part is that to truly love God and to walk in his way isn't a sacrifice at all. Because all of those things, all of those temptations, all of the ways of of wickedness before were just like, it was a bait and switch. They weren't actually going to offer you true pleasure. Like like you're not giving up true pleasure to get a different, no, you're you're relinquishing a lesser pleasure for a greater pleasure. And so really, this is crazy. It's not not really a sacrifice. It's an upgrade to, to live your life unto the Lord. And here's the thing, like as much as, you know, I wish it were, we received the love of the Lord and then now my heart is completely straightened out and I only ever love the light and I do what is good. But the truth is that we are caught in, between, in, in a world in between. 
See, there's, we've got one foot in the world. Like we very much are in this, this world that's perishing. That's, that's where we are located right now. And you think about this. You wonder why you're so tired. You wonder why you feel so worn down. You wonder why your heart gets so fatigued throughout the week. It's because you're fighting for life in a world that's dying. So on one, one hand, you have a world that's perishing. But on the other hand, the eternal life that God offers begins the moment of your regeneration. It begins then. I mean, God planned it from the beginning, but the act of regeneration takes place and now sets you on a completely new trajectory. And though we're loving the light and wanting to move towards the light and wanting to love God as he has loved us and love one another as God has loved us, the reality is that we will fail. The reality is there, there are still this competing love within our hearts. And when we fail with this, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus who stands at the right hand of the Father. And anytime we confess our sins to him, Jesus turns to the Father and says, do you see their sin? You see this deserving of condemnation, but remember Jesus says, I have taken it on myself already. That sin was already condemned in the flesh. Therefore, there is now, right now in this moment, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is the, the life that we're offered, this new life. This, it's like each time we, we, we confess our sins and repent, it, it, Scripture says, then comes times of refreshing, right? It's sort of a burst of new life. And so as we fail, even as people who have been born again to a living hope, we have confidence to confess our sins, to repent because we have Christ who is our advocate. And by the power of the Holy Spirit who is now working in us and through us, God strengthens us to live the life as he called us to live to love the light, to do good for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that the gospel man, is so scandalous that, that we deserved nothing. We have no ability to, to draw near your throne, no, no ability to point to our accolades as we sang earlier, or there was some scripture read about, we have no ability to, to wear the crown of thorns in your, or to wear the crown of righteousness in your presence because we, we did not earn it. Yet you, because of the great love with which you've loved us, you've caused us to be born again. You've set your love upon us and those who you've set your love upon, you will bring to new life. You give us the gift of eternal life. Lord, we look forward to that day when we get to enjoy eternal life in all of its glory, beholding your face, enjoying your presence, not, not imposed or, or not, not frustrated by the dying world that is trying to grab at our heels and pull us back into the old ways. Lord, help us to put the old man to death so the new man may live. And we thank you, Lord, that you have ordained this meal, this Lord's Supper, to not only show us that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed, that, that sin was condemned in his flesh, but as a reminder that as we take in the elements, you are in us, you are working within us to produce the kind of people who can love you rightly, who can live as a living sacrifice. Help us, dear Lord. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.